It is great to gather together. And I, I know I don't have to tell you to do this, but I'm just going to remind you that um, we, we have so many new faces here. If you're, how do I put this, an old face, <laughs> make sure and find a new face before you leave. I think I should just close in prayer at this point. <laughs> Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2, I told you that our series on Satan and his schemes, not my favorite thing to preach on, but it is necessary. I told you that our series that we're continuing today would feel like a war plane, like a bomber. That's kind of the metaphor I've been using. And and we started off just at a nice cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. There's no danger whatsoever. But we've been going down and down. We've been uh, now... I told you a week or two ago, kind of flying at treetop level. But today, that plane has its engines on fire. The ground is close enough you can read signs on the roads. There are holes in the plane. The wings are wobbling. We're putting our parachutes on. This is not looking good. But I did promise you that in the last few messages, we will pull up out of this seemingly fatal flight as we see Satan's unyielding power, his commitment to absolute wickedness. And so today, really, if I can put it this way, is the low point. Because we're going to see today that Satan is coming for you. That he is coming after you. We'll start in 2 Corinthians 11, or 2 rather, as our beginning point, And then we'll move on from there. But I want to spend some time... Laying the foundation for Satan's tactics. We must be ready. We must be prepared. You must be spiritually strong. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11. The Apostle Paul to a church to whom he's concerned about. He says, so that we are not, we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. We're not to be outwitted by Satan. He has designs. This is an interesting word. It means he has thought processes. He has plans what's the implication here if we are ignorant of his designs then we may potentially be outwitted we may be out schemed and so satan has designs literally thought processes and what is his goal his goal is to transfer his thinking to you so that you think like he does turn with me now to second corinthians 11 as we just introduce the idea of satan's tactics 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is concerned about how easily this Corinthian church has followed after fanciful, self-aggrandizing doctrines, false teachings, and he expresses his concern to them. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Did you notice his concern? Your thoughts. Same Greek word as Satan's designs in 2 Corinthians 3. That your thinking processes, your attitudes may be led astray. Because if Satan can nail you in your mind, then your life will follow suit. Now you remember last week we looked at Satan's objectives. They all have to do with usurping God's power. With taking what is not rightfully his, taking from God. Well, how does Satan try to get to God, so to speak? How is he going to do that? You and I, believers in Jesus Christ, we are the medium through which Satan attempts to thrust his sword at God. 
He can't get to God directly, but he can get to his people. Now, you might say, well, I'm not Satan's enemy. Yes, you are. Because Satan's own children, the unregenerate who don't know Christ, they're already obeying him. They're already doing his bidding. His quarrel isn't primarily with them. He's already got them. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says that he's already blinded their minds to the gospel. The unbeliever is already obeying the prince of the power of the air. Doing what he says. Doing his bidding. So the unbeliever is not his primary focus. You are. He is intent on harming the Christian. This is very clear in scripture. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. And you remember, we've looked at this, that the world often speaks of Satan's system, Satan's control. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy three twelve that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. That's Satan's doing. John said in 1 John three thirteen, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And sort of our home-based verse for this whole series, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And of course, we're to resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Did you notice that singular possessive pronoun? It is not the adversary. He is your adversary. He is your enemy. And of course, we think on Ephesians 6. To be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. There is suffering in the lives of Christians caused by Satan. Now, what we see is that Satan is intent and determined to harm the believer. He is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, listen very carefully. He can't tear your salvation away from you, but he can tear you up trying. He can tear your life apart. In fact, all the way to the point that as 1 Corinthians 3.15 warns, your heavenly reward, not heaven, but your heavenly reward may be forfeit. If your life goes so off the rails that you become basically irrelevant to the cause of Christ. And so by incapacitating Christians, by wounding Christians, Satan resists, he hampers the purposes of God in this age, and you are his target. And he has basically one chief objective, one goal, one overriding tactic under which all the others will fall. And that is to cause you as a Christian to think contrary to Scripture, which now will cause disobedient lives. That's his goal. To cause you to think contrary to Scripture, which causes disobedient lives. To cause Christians to use other sources of spiritual authority to make spiritual decisions. You know what one of the best things you can do to make decisions for your life is? Turn the news off. They have no impact in your life if you will do that. Thomas Watson, great Puritan preacher, he said, That is Satan's masterpiece. If he can but keep them from believing the truth, he is sure to keep them from obeying it. And what is the way that Satan attempts to fulfill this chief objective? How does he do this? With what Ephesians 6.16 calls the flaming darts, the arrows of the evil one. What is a flaming dart? It's a flaming projectile that not only wounds the victim, but sets the victim ablaze. 
so that there's long-lasting damage. What might be Satan's schemes in your life to cripple your effectiveness for Christ and for his kingdom? What are his tactics? We could list many. I boiled it down to four that I believe will cover the most important ground. And we'll examine the variety of texts in Scripture. Usually, if you haven't been at Grace for a long time, usually we just stay in one text and kind of stay there. Today we're going to jump around a little bit. His first tactic, we'll call this tactic to shield the face. Shield the face. Turn with me over to the right to Ephesians 4, and we'll be right near the end of the chapter. To shield the face. Now, you've all heard the phrase, you can see it on his face. You can see the emotion of joy or surprise or disappointment. Have you ever had that wonderful feeling of coming up behind somebody you know and when they turn around, the first spontaneous thing on their face is a smile? That's nice. That says something to you. Have you ever had that horrible experience of when somebody sees you, the first thing on their face is not a smile and then they put the false smile and you go, I saw what happened first. I saw it on your face. But what's the face of the Christian, so to speak? What is what reveals who you are? It's your life. It's your conduct. It's the only face you have. Your words are irrelevant. Anybody can say, I'm a Christian. Mormons say, I'm a Christian. Catholics say, I'm a Christian. Jehovah's Witnesses say, I'm a Christian. That's useless. Your face is your life. It's your conduct. This is why John said in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him, in Christ, ought to walk in the same manner In which he walked. What is Satan's goal? One of his goals is to cover Christ. To distort Christ. To hide Christ from the world. So what's his tactic then? It is to distort and hide the body of Christ. To hide the Christian. You. By shielding your face. By shielding the evidence of a changed life. And how would Satan do this? Well Ephesians 4 tells us how. Look with me at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. How does Satan go about trying to shield your face? We could do a little list here. He shields their face, first of all, with falsehood. Falsehood, this might not be an out-and-out lie. It might be something more subtle, like giving excuses, like rationalizations, half-truths. What do you call a half-truth? It's a lie. Falsehood, he could shield your face with rage. Rage, anger that purposefully lasts and lasts, and the sun goes down and comes up and goes down and comes up, and you're still angry. And it lasts for no reason except that precious you was offended. And what does that do? Verse 27, it gives opportunity to the devil. How else does he shield your face? With theft. Now, you might not normally put theft and Christian together in the the same sentence. 
In this church, I have personally had to address theft three times. Theft in the marriage, theft from work, and theft from the church. Gossip would be one way that Satan shields your face. It says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Corrupting talk, this is, this is a phrase that means in Greek to change someone's view of another. To say something that alters their view. That is a terrible thing to do. What does this do? Verse 30, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Why does it grieve the Holy Spirit when you alter someone else's view of another? Because God's view of the Christian is that he is saved and he is sanctified and he is set apart. He is in the heavenly places. He is seated right now at the right hand of God. And yet you say, did you hear what so-and-so did? That grieves the Holy Spirit who has sealed that person for salvation. Satan would use bitterness. That's an internal attitude of resentment that feels justified. I have a reason for this. He would use wrath. That's the internal attitude that you wish and hope that somebody is harmed, that God will nail them. And there's the internal attitude of anger. That's the emotion behind the wrath, the fierce determination that you will not be happy until someone else hurts. Well, bitterness, wrath, and anger... These are internal, and what are they going to do? They're going to manifest themselves, and they do with clamor. Clamor is the external act of making trouble. It is being divisive. It's being argumentative. It's being difficult. It's fighting to win. It is being that person that everyone walks with care around. Bitterness, wrath, and anger are manifested in clamor. They're manifested in slander. Now this is purposeful. This is the external act of marring someone's reputation with half-truths or outright lies, or worse, just one side of the story. And then finally, really covering all of this, just flat-out malice. Malice is vengeance. It is revenge. It is any external action which seeks to harm. And you might say, well, Christians wouldn't do that. Really, then why does Romans 12, Romans 12 tell us not to? Because Christians do. Now, we're really subtle about it. We do it with the cold shoulder. We do it with ignoring someone. We do it with tone of voice. We do it in really subtle ways. The knife might be smaller, but it's still a knife. And if I could say this, if those are the hallmarks of your life as a Christian, you've been rendered useless to the kingdom. Your baggage, you're a liability to the reputation of the people of God. And so... What are we to be instead? How are we to unshield the face? Well, verse 24 tells us, verse 20 rather, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, here it is, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of what? Your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, tender and good and wholesome. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The first tactic that Satan would use against you, Satan would have you shield the face. The second tactic that Satan would use against you, he would have you shirk the duty. He would have you shirk the duty. 
And to look at this idea, I want to have you turn with me to Romans 12, back to the left just a little bit. Romans 12 gives us what is really what we might call the constitution of the church of Jesus Christ. This is how we're to be. This is how we're to act. Verses 1 and 2, we're living sacrifices as worshipers. We're not to be conformed to the world. What does that mean? Well, that means that the world has no voice in our lives as Christians. None whatsoever. The world doesn't get to tell you how to be a Christian, and the world certainly doesn't get to tell us how to be a church. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Verse 3, we're not to have a high regard for self, but we're to think of ourselves with very sober judgment, with seriousness. And then we get to verse 4, very familiar to us. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. These are often called spiritual gifts, gifts given to the Christian by means of the Holy Spirit. These are talents or abilities that are given to us for the building up of the body of Christ, building up of one another. They're given to each person who's in Christ. A spiritual gift includes a yearning and a desire to carry out that gifting. There's a, there's a joy for you. The easiest way to find out what your spiritual gift is is to try them all out. The ones you're bad at aren't yours. It's very simple. It's the duty of the believer to use those talents. They're, they're not there for decoration. They're there to be used. And then, of course, the rest of the chapter tells us how we're to function, our duties as the members of the body of Christ. And you recall, our membership covenant is basically a rewording of Romans 12, 9 through 21, what we're to do. Now, from Romans 12, 4 through 8, I have to give you an obvious first warning that's not for most of you. I hope it's for none of you. The obvious first warning that I have to mention is that if someone is a church attender, a spectator, can I put it this way, a chronically uninvolved attender, there's a very real nature, a very real danger that there is no spiritual gift there. There's none. Why? Because that person isn't part of the body of Christ, has received no spiritual gift because he's still an unbeliever. Well, I just don't have a yearning to do anything for the body of Christ. I just don't want to. It's because you don't have the ability to want to yet. And so that is a scary danger. But for the true believer in Christ, the one I want to really address right now, a second warning, is that Satan would do damage to the kingdom of God simply by means of countless distracted lives. Distracted lives. I've been around long enough as a pastor now to hear certain phrases many, many times. Here's the top three. When my business is really going, I will serve the Lord. When somebody starts that sentence, I can just finish it for them. When I have more money, I will give something. No, you won't. And when the church leadership agrees me on, with me on some certain issue, I will get on board. Now, those are direct intentional excuses. But more dangerously, the ones that are more subtle, things like letting the Lord's Day be a competition for worship and a bunch of other things that I consider equally important. This isn't the Lord's and your day. This is the Lord's Day. 
or the constant pursuit of pleasure. I read an article recently where somebody was quoting a famous writer who said that America will eventually amuse itself to death, being distracted by everything. And how about this one, the more subtle, maybe the most subtle, a lack of concern, a lack of true, heartfelt concern for the lost and for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. We're not gathering just for our own sake. We're gathering for the sake of the elect who have not yet heard the gospel. And there's the key. There's the key, this genuine, heartfelt concern for the lost, for the kingdom. This is transformative. This takes away distraction because now it creates submissive Christians because they don't want to take time to argue about petty things. They create, it creates dependable Christians. They see the bigger picture of serving the kingdom and how important that is. And they're not making excuses. They're all in in serving Christ. It creates selfless Christians because they're not just serving in the church as a good thing to do. They're serving because they've taken up their cross to follow Christ. They serve at his pleasure with eagerness and with desire. They go about their duties. When I was a young teenager, I was introduced to an older couple, Francis and Ruth Moon. I'll never forget them as long as I live. They were in their 80s by the time I met them, and I used to get to spend time in their home, and they would feed me lunch, and I I think I was mowing their lawn, and maybe that's how I got to know them. And I would go in their home, and you could see in their home where their priorities were. They had often, and I can picture sitting on their couch, off to this side, they had an entire wall of their living room with all of the missionaries and all of the ministries, 20 of them that they were financially supporting. This whole wall had prayer requests on it, pictures and pamphlets. On the wall directly behind the couch were the pictures of the four children that they adopted because the book of James says that true religion is this, to look after orphans. And in the kitchen over here, there was always two casseroles, not one baking, because she fed a family every day in their church. And what they talked about was the Lord and the church and looking at their watches and saying, we've got to go, we've got a meeting at church, we've got to go, we're preparing our Sunday school class. They were all in. Let me ask you a question. If a 13, 14, 15-year-old came and sat in your home, would he, four decades later, remember a family so devoted to Christ that he'll never forget it? Would that be the legacy of your home, of your life? Or will it be distraction? Undistracted Christians have basically lost interest in every other pursuit in life except for being all in for the gospel ministry. Satan's tactics against you, he wants to shield your face. He wants you to shirk your duty. Here's a third tactic. We'll call this one, shatter the mirror. Shatter the mirror. Turn with me back to the right to James chapter 1. In James 1, we love the book of James. It's really kind of the book of Proverbs of the New Testament. It's the ultimate epistle concerning the applied theology of the Christian, how we're to live our lives. And in James 1, we have a very familiar set of admonitions. James 1, beginning in verse 19. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers. This is verse 19 of chapter 1. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Now, this is generally a very good admonition for the Christian life, right? I mean, after all, Proverbs has a dozen warnings or so about being hot-tempered, hot-headed. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Yes, this is good counsel for Christians, but in this case, it has a specific context. And the context is how you respond to the preached word of God. Verse 21, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, how do I know this is talking about the preached word of God and maybe not just your personal Bible reading? Because when James was written, first of all, it was the first New Testament book ever written. And when this was circulated, we didn't have a New Testament. And the second reason is that nobody except a very, very select few owned a personal copy of the scriptures. The word of God that the church had was the authoritative preaching of the apostles and of men they had trained preaching either a new revelation from God given to the apostles, which we now have in the New Testament, or preaching the Old Testament, which certainly teaches us of Christ. But the average Christian didn't own a personal copy of the Bible. They relied on preaching. And what does James say when you hear preaching? Don't get mad. He said, don't get mad. Be quick to hear. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. And what's the classic admonition concerning hearing the word of God? Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not what? Hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Oh, there we go. If Satan can shatter the mirror, the word of God in your life, held up to continually examine your soul, then he can diminish your spiritual growth. He can create spiritual blind spots which are never addressed. There's to be a sensitivity to the work of the Spirit through the Word of God. You should expect this. You should expect to be taught. You should expect to be reproved. You should expect to be corrected. You should expect to be trained in righteousness, which is exactly what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. If you want to remember teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, it spells tractor, like a tractor running over you. That's what the Word of God does. Now, I'm sure this will interest you and you'll go away blessed by this, but I researched mirrors. And mirrors have changed over the years. Just a few generations ago, the average mirror in a household was about the size of a compact that most of you ladies have in your purse. And you came up and you held it by one little corner and you kind of did this. Okay, I look good. And you put it down. Maybe the ladies did a couple more and that was it. You combed your hair maybe. Now the mirror in your master bathroom is the size of a stadium jumbotron. And it's so well lit, spotlights everywhere. I mean, even in our bathroom, you hit one switch and you think you're on stage. It's like, bah, and music plays. No blemishes get hidden, no imperfections. I find it best to look in the mirror in the dark. I think that works the best. Because mirrors are what? They're honest. There's no such thing as a lying mirror. It keeps no secrets. The Word of God needs to not be the little handheld thing that we occasionally pick up. It needs to be the jumbotron well lit. 
How easily do you receive the teaching, the reproof, the correction, the training in righteousness? What's your level of eagerness? What's your level of yearning? And that really brings us to what is absolutely the most diabolical of Satan's tactics, the one upon which all the others hinge. He would shield the face. He would shirk the duty. He would shatter the mirror. But the way he does those three is the last one. He would shift the truth. He would shift the truth. I'd like to have you turn with me to the Old Testament, to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. This is the fatal shot. This is the deadly blow. This is the lethal injection into the life of the Christian to render you useless, powerless, and irrelevant. And that is to subtly distract you from the truth of the Scriptures, particularly as revealed in the preached Word of God. Now, how do you prevent the shift of truth in your own life? Well, Nehemiah 8 tells us, and you might consider that everything I've said to this point was an excuse to get here. Nehemiah 8 takes place at the very end of an approximately 100-year period chronicled in Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are one book in the Hebrew Bible and really rightly considered together. Ezra and Nehemiah takes place over about a century and it records the the return of a small handful of Jewish exiles back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem. The exiles have been humbled. They've experienced the nation's uh, idolatry and covenant treachery, punishment by God. And now tens of thousands have returned, probably just a total of about 50,000, not that many. They've seen the disciplining hand of God. And now near the end of this time, recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah, the exiles are gathered together outside Jerusalem. And this is a generation that has not been taught the word of God. They've not been steeped in the faith given to Israel many centuries before. And here's the situation. Nehemiah 8 verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Who told Ezra? The people did. Bring us the word of God. Verse 2, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. There had been significant preparation for this reading of the word of God. A large wooden platform has been constructed. On the platform, verse 4 tells us, are other men who would be reading the law of God to people. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and gave the sen- they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is a bombshell. 
This is what preaching is to be about. How do you prevent the shift of truth, which is Satan's ultimate tactic? Nehemiah, just those last verses, five five through eight, give us ten ways to prevent the shift of truth. Ten ways to prevent the shift of truth, and they all center on preaching. If you think that you have a high regard for preaching, wait about 20 more minutes. The first way to prevent the the shift of truth, we'll call this devotion. Devotion. Now, in verse 5, it says, Ezra opened the book. Well, it wasn't a book like we have. It's called a codex or a book with two covers and and a spine. They didn't use that system yet. It was a scroll. Now, if you've ever seen a scroll or you've pictured a scroll or you've seen them online, maybe. I don't know how many of you own scrolls. Generally speaking, the scrolls that you've seen are about this big. And you pull it up and you go like this. Well, the scroll of the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, would weigh about 50 pounds. And it would take two men to carry it up. One holding a bar on one end, one holding a bar on the other end. And then they would turn it. And either on the platform, on some sort of pulpit, much bigger than this, or the men just standing there, then Ezra would get hold of that end and he would pull. And he would begin to see this word of God And so when Ezra unrolled the scroll, it was brought up to the platform by men who would assist him. And what did the people do? Verse 5 says, as he opened it, as he pulled on that scroll, all the people stood. They recognized that they had not heard from God in his word. Do you realize that most of them had probably never heard the Bible read aloud? They just heard the legends. And they stood Because God was about to speak to them. They were about to hear the voice of God himself. Because anytime you simply read aloud the words of God, God is speaking. One of my seminary professors told our class once, if you're a terrible preacher, at least just read the Bible. You can't mess that up. Because God is speaking. And so you avoid the shift of truth with devotion. There's a second way to avoid the shift of truth. We'll call it appreciation. Appreciation. Oh, how we need to appreciate the word of God. Verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord. For what? Just simply that he held the law of God in his hand. He held it there in his hand. He blessed the Lord. They didn't worship the law. They worshiped God who would reveal himself with words. It is a mind-boggling thing to think that the God who made the universe, who made hundreds of billions of planets and galaxies and the sun and the moon and the stars and plant life and humanity, that he made everything, that he could find a way in his great wisdom to describe himself in words that a five-year-old can understand. That's mind-boggling. And so, of course, he blessed the Lord The appreciation of Ezra just opening the word of God was such that he stopped and he thanked God for the fact that in his hand he held the revelation, it says, of Ha Elohim Hagadol, the God, the Great One. He blessed the Lord, the God, the Great One. Now, I'm thankful, and we should all be thankful, that we each own a copy of the Scriptures. In this room alone, there's probably two or three hundred Bibles right now. I'm glad for that. It's been God's grace and mercy to humanity. But let me ask you this. 
How would your appreciation for the word of God intensify over time if the only time you ever heard it was when we read it aloud? May we return to that level of appreciation. May our appreciation be intense as we read the word of God. There's a third way to avoid the shift of truth. We'll call this submission. Submission. After Ezra blessed God in verse 6, all the people answered, Amen, Amen. This is a a verbally out loud agreement and affirmation. And this is before even when anyone said a word. Before the Bible's been read, already the people are saying, Amen, Amen. It means, yes, indeed, this is truth. This is true. And this is spoken before the truth is even given. That what is about to be said is divine. It is heavenly. It is from God. It is from God alone. By the way, there's only one other person in Scripture who, ver- who, who consistently said, Amen, Amen, before speaking truth, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, often translated, Truly, truly, I say to you. They were being as much like Christ as they possibly could have been. Now, what does this mean? It means that they didn't come with an attitude of superiority. They didn't come with an attitude of evaluation. They didn't come with a, let's see what this guy has to say sort of an attitude. They came with hunger. They came with hearts of submission. They came saying what is about to be spoken is truth. I will submit to this truth because it is amen, amen. It is true and very true. Just by the opening of the scroll. Listen, if your subtle attitude toward preaching has elements of internal pushback, of arrogance, of anything less than amen, amen, then Satan is winning. He's winning. If he can get you to devalue the preached word, or worse, to think things like, I already know this, then Satan is gaining on you. There's a fourth way to avoid the shift of truth. We'll call this one anticipation. Anticipation. Verse 6 says, They were lifting up their hands. Now, we have, a, we have a great misunderstanding of what it means in the Bible to lift up your hands. This isn't an emotion-crazed response. This is not a psychological response to the fact that the music got louder or the key changed. Perhaps with one, maybe two exceptions in all of the Old Testament, the lifting of hands in worship does not have to do with happiness or joy. It has to do with grief, anguish, and need. Psalm 28 Verse 2, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Verse 4 says, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Why? Because my soul is thirsty and my flesh is fainting. The lifting of hands was symbolic, not primarily to express joy or happiness or because the music started. The lifting of hands is to say, I am empty and I need you to put something in this. I have a need and I need you to fill it. The lifting of hands in this context says, fill me up with the word of God. Place your truth in my hand. There's a yearning, a longing, a craving, a a hunger, a a pining, this burning desire such that without being told, they reach up to heaven to say, fill my hands with truth. The people of God were in, in anticipation. 
that the word of God, not just metaphorically filling their hands, it would fill their hearts, fill their minds with what Peter called in 2 Peter 1.3, all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's a fifth way to avoid the shift of truth. <clears throat> this is a word we don't use much, but we should bring it back. Prostration. Prostration. Verse 6 continues then that the people bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. We don't see that much anymore. Now the law of God is being read. Their response is this universal sign of self-abasement, of humbling themselves before the word of God as a sign of humbling themselves before the God of the word. Isn't this interesting that they started off, the scroll is open, they stand, they lift up their hands when Ezra blesses the Lord and blesses Elohim, Hagadol, the God, the Great One. And then as the word of God begins to be read, they sink to their knees and they bow down. This is a universe away from design church that makes me comfortable. Design church that makes me the center. Design church that makes certain my opinions and thoughts are considered so that things can be as convenient as possible. No, the word of God is being read aloud and God's people are putting their faces in the dirt. That's not very convenient, but it is right. They're prostrate before the Lord because when God speaks, you bend low. When God speaks, everything else stops. You abase yourself because you have nothing to say and he has everything to say. Listen, when the word of God is read aloud in this room, in this sanctuary, our words stop. We stop mid-paragraph, we stop mid-sentence, we stop mid-thought. Because why would your words matter when God's words are spoken? We arrive at the presentation of the Word of God with a healthy dose of prostration and trembling before God. We don't talk about trembling very much, do we? And yet the same God who is the God of grace in the New Testament is the God of all things in all of the Bible before whom we tremble. There's a sixth way to avoid the shift of truth. We'll call this one application. Application. Verse 7, the Bible teachers assigned by Ezra says, helped the people understand the law. Now, you have to remember something. Almost all of these gathered here had been born in Babylon. And so the teachers didn't just read the law. They had to bridge the cultural gap of 70 years in exile. Most of them didn't have any memory of living in Israel as God's chosen nation. They hadn't known King David. They hadn't known King Solomon. They didn't know those glory years. That that was hundreds and hundreds of years prior. Now they have to bridge Israel's history with their current situation. And so the word of God was read with a view toward application to life today. It wasn't just, here's theology. It wasn't just a lecture Theology that's merely knowledge without application, all that does is lead to pride that I know more than you do. The rich truths of Scripture aren't there just to learn. They're there to be the scalpel that cuts into your sin, to be the sutures then that sews up that wound and to be the salve and the ointment that covers that wound. It saddens me to listen to some pastors who have given up on reaching the inner souls of their people and they simply give Sunday morning theology lectures do that at home we come to church to do what 
The great Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones in the mid-1900s said, when he defined true preaching, he said, true preaching is logic on fire. It is theology that is lit in your soul to make a difference, to purify your thoughts, purify your words, purify your deeds. There's a seventh way to avoid the shift of truth. We'll call this one concentration. Concentration. The end of verse 6. The preaching was taking place. It says, while the people remained in their places. There was a focus. There was a stillness. There was thinking. How long did they concentrate? Verse 3. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. What does that mean? Translation. When the sun came up, all the way to lunch. That's just the reading of the word. They haven't started the preaching part yet. How great it would be to be able to concentrate like that. Listen, God has called you to engage your mind. Preaching is anything but a passive activity. It's not passive, it's active. Your wheels are turning. You should be speaking to God. You should be asking for help to understand. Right now, truth is flying at you like glorious nuggets of spiritual food and you're trying to catch all of them you can and ask God to help you with that. A sermon is a conversation, not between me and you, but between your own heart and your mind with the truths that are being placed before you. At the end of a message, there should be a a sense of having engaged with God, having activated the gears of your mind, having been energized. And yes, you should be a little tired because you have been focused and you've been concentrating. You do whatever it takes to concentrate, whatever it takes. Get on your knees the night before. Ask God for a sharp mind. Get a good night's rest. Eat breakfast. Be here ready and ready to go. I wonder if any of those Israelites gathered outside the wall of Jerusalem checked their phones to see who had just texted them. I wonder if any of them checked the alert that just popped up on their device to see that really important reminder, change the oil tomorrow. No. Get your mind and your heart ready to concentrate at any cost because your spiritual health depends on it. And Satan is counting on your distraction. There's an eighth way to avoid the shift of truth. We'll call this exposition. Exposition, verse 8 says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. Now there's two ideas here that we have to keep in mind. First of all, many of the exiles didn't understand Hebrew. You understand here a couple of times it uses the phrase like, for example, in verse 2, and all who could understand what they heard. It means there were some who couldn't. In any immigrant situation, generally by the third generation, the youngest generation doesn't speak the native tongue anymore. That's just the way it happens. They would have been using Aramaic along with Hebrew. Aramaic was the, the international language of the region. And interestingly, the original text of Ezra, the book of Ezra, is written Um, with a lot of Aramaic in it as well. So that's the first idea. They had to translate. They had to translate. But the second idea, this Hebrew word here, clearly, it means to make distinct, to separate, or to divide into sections. What does that mean? It means they read a section, explained a section, read a section, explained a section. What do we call that? We call that expository preaching. Exposing the text of Scripture. There is absolute joy in simply letting the Word of God speak for itself. And the way to do this is to not take the position of editing God. Can I put it this way? 
when the text of Scripture says something that makes you uncomfortable, you're wrong. It's that simple. And your discomfort is rooted somewhere in a wrong attitude or a sinful belief in what the world said instead of what the Bible says. And so when you hear the text of Scripture contradicting the world in regards to issues such as marriage and sexuality and women and men and child rearing, then the world is wrong. And I need to submit to God even if I'm alone doing so. And by the way, to those listening to this message online, and I know there are many of you and I'm thankful for you. Many of you go to other churches, some of you listening from other states, other nations. If you have a lazy pastor who won't put in the time and the grit and the determination to dig into the deep minds of Scripture, to come out of his study dirty and sweaty from digging, yet cleansed and inspired from the gold and the silver and the diamonds, that he should be wheeling out here to the pulpit to dump at your feet and say, look what I found. If he won't do that, run away. Get away. Because that's precisely where Satan would have you. The church needs exposition and the church needs expositors. Desperately. There's a ninth way to avoid a shift of truth. Interpretation. Interpretation. Verse 8 says, They gave the sense. They gave what it means. The implications for doctrine. The implications for practice. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. It speaks of giving the understanding of the text. What is the theology embedded in this text? How does it fit into the overall redemptive plan of God? How does this text fit into the context of the paragraph, of the section, of the chapter, of the book, of the testament? What covenant is primarily in view here? All those things have to be considered. If you've ever heard a sermon that sounded so lofty that you had no idea what the guy was talking about, that's not the goal. The goal is that they understand the reading. I don't want you to leave here going, wow, I have no idea what just happened, but I bet it was good. I want you leaving here knowing something. The great theologian and founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, he spoke of how Satan attacks preachers. And he said, quote, the faithful pastor is sorely assailed every device of Satan being used to distort the one all-important message of grace into something which is not vital. Pastors get tempted to use methods, to use trickery, to use their own personalities and nonsense like that to attract people or build a so-called ministry. Pastors who won't simply explain the Bible and interpret the Bible are in danger of forsaking. Look, our job description is not hard. Second Timothy 4, preach the word. That's it. That's the job description. And so we are to provide interpretation. You should know more today than you did a year ago than you did two years ago. One more way to avoid the shift of truth, and it's really the result. We'll call this one illumination. Illumination, verse 8, I just mentioned this, so that the people understood the reading. It's not just they had more head knowledge. Remember, if your mind is changed, then your life is changed. So they went away different. The word of God has done its work. As Ephesians 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Incisions have been made. Sin has been cut out. Sutures have been sown. And salve and ointment and the healing of God's word 
has been applied. Souls have been enlivened. Minds have been conformed and reformed. And lives have been changed. Listen, all these ways to avoid this shift of truth, devotion, appreciation, submission, anticipation, prostration, application, concentration, exposition, interpretation, illumination, those are a far cry. They're a universe removed from the cynical, arrogant church attender who comes with a smirk, who comes with a scowl, who lacks in hunger, lacks in conviction, lacks in yearning, lacks in eagerness, lacks in humility. And would never get on his face before the God of the word when the word of God is opened. If that is you, Satan has you in his sights. And it's not a bullet you'll feel. It's a tranquilizing dart that you won't even notice as you spiritually go to sleep. Exactly where Satan would have you. Don't do it. Don't do it. Heed the warning of Jesus Christ himself to the church at Sardis. He said, wake up and strengthen what remains. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. We're to heed the words of Paul to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 34. He said, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. We're to heed the words we're so familiar with now from Peter. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. It means to wake up. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Our war plane is skimming the ground at this point. Are you going back up or are you going to crash? I've watched professing Christians crash. For the rest of our messages on Satan and his schemes our war plane is going to start pulling out of this seemingly fatal dive, and I'm ready. The last four messages will focus on Satan versus the gospel and the triumph of the gospel, the Christian's defenses, the Christian's victory, and Satan's coming doom. Yes, you are to be wary of your spiritual enemy, but always remember, 1 John 4, 4, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. We always remember that. Listen, this message has been about how Satan focuses his attacks on the believer in Jesus Christ. We're to be wary of this. But if you're not a Christian, you might be saying, I don't want any part of that. It's too late. You're in the middle of it. You're not a focus of Satan's attacks. He's already won in your life. He's already been victorious. He's beaten you. You don't even know it. The Bible says you are a child of the devil. Your spiritual father just hasn't identified himself to you. You need to change fathers. And Jesus said, no one comes to his father except through him. You need to be like Peter, to whom Jesus said, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. You need to come to Christ. You need to ask for his mercy, for his forgiveness. Ask him to apply the payment of sin that he made at the cross for you. And then, and only then, can you join every other Christian To rightly say, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we can't even fathom the power and the might of the evil one. We can't fathom the power and the the strength of an invisible being who has been deceiving mankind for millennia. We can't fathom what it means 
to try to avoid the schemes of a being who is so wicked that he has caused billions of deaths. And yet, our little tiny selves, we're fragile like a flower that blooms one day and burns the next. Our little tiny selves, you have given us the Holy Spirit. You have given us the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You have made promises to us that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so, Lord, I pray for this body of believers. I pray that they would not be fooled. I pray that they would never stray from the truth, never fall for the shifting of the truth. But to cling to the word of God, to cling cling to the God of the word so closely so that we might live lives that are fruitful, that are obedient, that are strong in the Lord. And all of this is because of the Lord Jesus Christ And now, Lord, it is our joy, it is our pleasure to remember the Lord per his command, to remember his body and his blood. And so we would ask you, God, to bless this most special of times now as we humbly, on our knees, come before you in the Lord's table. We pray in Christ's name, amen. About three or four times a year, if I can, I try to... um, Make sure that our Lord's table time centers on Isaiah 53. This great Old Testament prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it begins really just a few verses before the end of 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. That looks ahead to a day when the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, will be the king of kings, and all the kings of the earth will bow to him. We're going to make our time of uh, service at the Lord's table a time of uh, looking at Isaiah 53 And so let's enter into that time this time.